This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to what I know will be an inspiring hour. Uh, my name is Nicolette Jones, and uh, among other things, I review the children's books for the Sunday Times. And I'm delighted to be spending the next hour in the company of Anthony Brown, and indeed with all of you. Um, this is the second year of Anthony's uh, tenure as Children's Laureate. Um, he has, I believe, taken part in hundreds of events uh, during these two years. So our mission between us is to ask him something that he hasn't already been asked in the course <laughs> of those. You will get your chance shortly. Anthony Brown is known for his playful, surreal images in which the shapes often substitute for each other. One shape uh, substitutes for something it resembles. And for his psychologically revealing detail, uh, for his strong sense of social justice, for the way that the text uh, tells us uh, less than the pictures, or at least that the, the pictures tell us at least as much as the words, and also for his gorillas. He's one of the most rewarding of our illustrators, enjoyed uh, by readers, and indeed pre-readers, of all ages. He's been honored with three Kurt Mashler Awards, two Greenaway Medals, uh, and the Hans Christian Andersen Award. In fact, he's the first British illustrator ever to receive one, uh, as well, of course, as his laureateship. Uh, but he didn't always know that he was going to be an illustrator. He once wanted to be a boxer. Um, in fact, he also thought he might be a journalist, but obviously that would have been a very bad idea. Um, as a child, he, uh, he stood on the table in his parents' pub in Yorkshire and told stories about a character called Big Dumb Tackle uh, to the customers in the pub. What happened between then and the publication of his first children's book, Through the Magic Mirror, in 1976, about 40 books ago, uh, I will leave him to tell you a bit more about. He's at, at the moment, he's working on a memoir of his own career uh, called Playing the Shape Game. And uh, what he's going to do now is give us a bit of a presentation about his own history and a bit of a foretaste of some of the information that might be in that memoir when it comes out. Okay. If yep. you like it enough. If you don't, it'll <laughs> well, be cut. Absolutely, this is the test. <laughs> um, in actual fact, the memoir is finished. It's just a question of um, getting it printed. Oh, right. um, I should put a, a slide, shouldn't I? Huh, there we are, the cover. Um, when my brother Michael and I were children, we invented two games. The first involved throwing a ball to the top of the stairs, watching it bounce back down and catching it before it reached the ground. It was the result of countless wet afternoons in West Yorkshire, the listless alternative to more vigorous outdoor pursuits played by two bored but competitive boys. The second game, the shape game, was far more interesting. I've spoken of this simple drawing game to children all over the world, and they've made me realize that its prevalence in my own childhood was by no means unique. Children everywhere have invented their own versions of the shape game. It has certainly been a very important part of my career, for I've played it in every book I've ever made. The rules are very simple. The first person draws an abstract shape. The second person, ideally using a different colored pen, transforms it into something. It seems that all children love this game and are very good at it, far better than adults are. It's an unfortunate part of growing up. 
that we lose a great deal of contact with our visual imagination. The wonder with which we look at the world diminishes, and this inhibits both our inclination to draw, most adults give up entirely, and also our ability to draw with any real creative value. Looking back, I can see that although the shape game is great fun, it also has a serious aspect. Essentially, the game is about creativity itself. Every time we draw a picture, or write a story, or compose a piece of music, we're playing the shape game. When children ask me, and they always do, where I get my inspiration from, I tell them it's the same place that they get theirs, from things that happened to me when I was a boy, or things that happened to my own children, from other people's stories, from films, from paintings, or from dreams. There are so many sources of inspiration. Everything comes from somewhere else. And when we create something, we're transforming our own experience into a picture, a book, or perhaps a piece of music. We are playing our own shape game. One of the most interesting aspects of working on the book has been finding out how many memories of childhood incidents influence my work, sometimes indirectly, often bringing to light events I'd all but forgotten and only now fully realize their significance. My choice of illustrations at times reflects these memories, but the main intention of the book is to share my delight in the shape game and my passionate belief in the power of art to enrich our lives. The first few years, of, well, you may notice this. Actually, this is the only. There are only two pictures that I've painted particularly for the book, and this is one of them right at the beginning. Picture of our family. You may see that my ears give a slight clue as to the main character I'm going to develop in years to come. <laughs> and some of you may notice the shadow of my father, who's been there all my life. The first few years of my life were spent in my grandparents' pub in Wyke near Bradford. The Red Lion was a rough place, frequented by rough men. There was a field at the back which was in the shadow of an enormous viaduct, and one of my earliest memories is of watching from my bedroom window as a crowd formed a circle beneath it while two drunks took off their coats, perhaps even rolled up their sleeves and shouted at each other. There were no punches thrown, and despite my young age and the unpredictability of the angry men, I felt not afraid, but rather that I was witnessing something faintly absurd. Nevertheless, there was a magnificent gladiatorial quality about the viaduct, and it left a lasting impression on me. It's a symbol that's been resurrected several times in my books. There are times when I would wander into the bar, we've already heard this, stand on a table and tell stories to amuse the customers. The stories were, yes, about Big Dumb Tackle. I've no idea where the name came from, but he was a sort of Yorkshire superhero who wore an old flat cap and could fly. Big Dumb Tackle, I'm sure, was partly influenced by the comics I read, but his origins were equally domestic. I, fa I was fascinated by one of the pub regulars, who often asked me to hit him in the stomach as hard as I could. My punches were unrewarded, for he never so much as flinched, and as he belched and laughed at my useless exertions, he seemed every bit as heroic as my fictional idols. Dad loved to draw, and for a while he'd been an art teacher at a school in Sheffield. He worked in the pub and drew caricatures of the regulars, capturing their boozy profiles with skill and humour. He spent hours drawing with my brother and me. He may not have known it, but he was teaching us to view drawing not only as a childish occupation, but as a lifelong pursuit. It's a lesson that we've never forgotten. Most of my pictures were of great battles, soldiers, cowboys or knights in armour, caught in moments of ferocious conflict. At first, they just looked like scenes of terrible carnage, but a closer look revealed jokes speech bubbles and snippets of descriptive writing. I love to use words and pictures together, and long before I considered a career in children's books, I was creating pictures 
that were more interesting than they first appeared. I haven't kept any of the battle scenes, but this picture of a pair of legs, presumably mine, is fairly typical brown, then and now. Unlike my actual legs, these have pirates hiding in their shoes and climbing up the masts. I'd never heard of surrealism, but I've learned over the years that children are natural surrealists. To a child, a pair of legs has limitless possibilities. The socks and shoes are merely the least interesting starting point. I suspect that Freud would have plenty to say about the image, but I believe I had a very secure and balanced childhood. <laughs> the drawing is an advanced example of the shape game. I've taken an ordinary picture and with a few extraordinary additions, transformed it into a story. It's changed from something purely representational into something strange, dreamlike, interesting. Of course, one could say that all drawings are examples of the shape game. The artist looks at a face or a tree and transforms it into his or her interpretation of what he or she sees. When an image is produced on paper, it's unavoidably manipulated, personalised, changed into a drawing. Michael, my brother and I, shared a bedroom in the pub and it was transformed one day by a firm of decorators. Instead of putting up wallpaper, they created a pattern of green squiggles on the walls with their brushes. I thought this was wonderful, and I suppose those men were the Michelangelo's of my early childhood. I was a nervous little boy, and the mysterious creatures that I would imagine from the pile of clothes in the corner of the room presented me with a nightly dilemma. Sleep was impossible until the wardrobe and the space under the bed had been thoroughly checked. But somehow, the green squiggles didn't disturb me at all, and I drifted off playing the shape game in my head with every one of them. I went to the same primary school as Michael. It was a small, cheap but pretentious private school which taught Latin to its bemused five-year-olds. Dad was a conservative voter who had taught at private schools himself and considered it his duty to provide his sons with this modest privilege. Despite its shortcomings, even though there were nearly two years between us, lack of staff and teaching space meant that Michael and I were in the same class. The school was convinced it was superior to its local Church of England rival. Even Dad came to realise that this wasn't the case, for after just a year, he transferred both of us to the state school. We'd survived several encounters with the state school boys while we were still in private education. The route to and from our school took us past theirs, and they would take exception to our apparent airs by bumping us off the pavement, driving their bony shoulders into our blazer-bearing torsos with unconscious political intent. The invasion of the two posh boys on the first day of our transfer was met with relish by the old-timers and I inevitably got into a fight during the first break time. As a crowd gathered, we tacitly settled into a kind of wrestle, culminating in me reproducing the only move that was ever moderately effective against my older brother, grabbing my opponent's neck under my arm and performing an act of mock strangulation. A member of staff eventually caught us in this position and we were sent to the headmaster immediately. I felt chastened at being in trouble on the first day, but also a little aggrieved at the case of mistaken identity. What the other boy had failed to realise was that I'd been merely dressing up as a posh boy the previous year. Because we were so close in age and both enjoyed the same activities, Michael and I were best friends. We spent nearly all our time together, usually kicking, throwing or hitting a ball of some sort. But occasionally we would seek a greater thrill in one of the many hazardous areas that served as our playgrounds. We never questioned the local park's, local park's appropriateness for our daily sporting needs, but if ever we craved the intoxicating scent of danger, it was necessary to venture into one of the nearby fields or quarries where we could stay all day if we wanted to, casually risking our lives. We lived in a fairly middle-class part of town. 
but we only had to wander under the railway bridge to an area called the Lidget to find an immediate change. Suddenly the shops became cheaper, the landscape became bleaker, the children rougher, the do roaming dogs mangier, and the potential for adventure greater. In one of the fields, Cronus Park, was a well covered by a sheet of corrugated iron. We often removed this and stared into the blackness. Experiments proved the well to be so deep that if you dropped a stone, you never heard it reach the bottom. And as a young boy, I accepted the possibility that it never did. About a metre down the well, there was a tunnel built into the side. It was a kind of initiation test for every boy to collapse on, clasp onto the grass at the top, swing his legs down into the tunnel, and then manoeuvre the rest of his body into the pitch black hole. Once inside, the passage was so narrow that it was impossible to turn round until one had crawled on one's hands and knees a few metres to the end, where the walls widened slightly. The challenge was completed by crawling back and hauling oneself up to the surface, legs dangling above the drop. Before the eyes of other boys, Michael and I completed this challenge out of a sense of necessity. But it was only several decades later, when I actually wrote and illustrated the book called The Tunnel, that we finally admitted to each other how terrified we'd been. I always knew that when I left school, I would go to art college. Drawing and painting were my favourite things to do, and although I knew it was difficult to make a living in art, it seemed essential that I continue to create it. I was naturally drawn towards fine art. I craved artistic freedom and dreamed of getting paid to paint whatever I liked, but I was informed enough to know that I would have to make compromises if I was to survive as an artist. So I chose to study graphic design at Leeds College of Art. It seemed less like a waste of time. I'd leapfrogged a year at primary school and left secondary school at 16 after just one year of sixth form. So when I started at art college, I was two years younger than the other students. This difference felt enormous. They seemed so experienced and confident. Watching them swan around the college in their trendy clothes, I felt out of place and reacted by growing my hair and a scruffy beard. For the foundation year, we were encouraged to forget everything we'd learned about art. If we'd developed any specific skills, they were dismissed so that all students were starting at the same level. I was skilled with a pencil and a thin brush, so I found it excruciating to be forced to use only thick sticks of charcoal and big black brushes. One day, the tutor brought in a box of matches. He took five matches from the box and dropped them on the floor. Using charcoal sticks, we had to draw them in whichever arrangement they fell. I could understand the merit of this. The simplicity of the objects forced us to concentrate on the spatial relationships between them as opposed to the objects themselves. But I was surprised when the tutor brought the matches in again the next day and the day after that. We continued with the same exercise for three weeks. Actually, as I read that, I read, it must be an exaggeration. It couldn't have been three weeks. One of the few requirements of the course that I did enjoy was life drawing. When the time came for the first class, I was still unsure of my way around the college. I couldn't find the right room. By the time I did find it, I was late for the class, so I stood nervously outside the door for a while, preparing for my entrance. I pushed my way in, only to witness the most bizarre tableau. The curious de details of life drawing classes had been sniggeringly disclosed to me at school, but I was nonetheless shocked by the sight before me. There she was, a real naked woman, motionless in the middle of the room. Surrounding her were several shadowy figures. They were probably doing nothing, something no more sordid than drawing, but how could I be sure? Although I understood the, understood the nature of the class, in my giddy astonishment, it seemed as if I'd stumbled upon some secret perversion of academia. I hastily, like Willie, left the room. 
Once outside, I soon realised my mistake and went back in a few moments later, affecting an air of assurance. I'd clearly found whatever it was I went out for. <laughs> I loved life drawing because the reins were withdrawn. We were simply shown a naked body and told to draw it. It was the most freedom we were ever granted. But the tutors nonetheless emphasised it was still an exercise and we should view the model simply as a form for study. We were encouraged to concentrate and the physical aspects of the subject, paying attention to such elements as form, shape, light and colour. They wanted us to draw the model exactly as we would a chair or a bowl of fruit. But I was more interested in conveying a sense of the event. I was fascinated by the extraordinary social environment we were in. The model was a conscious human being and I couldn't help but imagine what she was thinking while we watched her. Na I was very young, obviously, as you can tell at this time, in many ways. Naked before our scrutiny, her vulnerability seemed profound. Surely it'd be far more interesting if this unique atmosphere was somehow captured, as well as the mere physical aspects. As I drew, I found myself making up stories in my head about the model's life. How did she arrived in this situation? In a way, I was applying the principles of illustration to the life-drawing exercise. As the course went on, I became more confident. <coughs> and took more and more liberties in order to bring out the stories of my life drawings. I spent a week producing a life-size painting of a female model, reaching down, taking the hem of her dress and lifting it up over her head. I made several drawings depicting the different stages of the action and superimposed them on top of each other to create a sense of movement over time. On another occasion, I saw the model arrive and noticed it was that she was wearing a pair of red high-heeled shoes. She prepared for the class by taking everything off, but I asked her to put the shoes back on. She did, and something remarkable happened to the atmosphere. It was as if her vulnerability was suddenly evident to everyone in the room, not least to the model herself. The red shoes were almost obscenely vivid and seemed to exaggerate rather than relieve her nakedness. The veneer of professionalism evaporated and she was suddenly exposed. She ceased to be a nude art model. She was a naked woman, willingly bearing herself to a group of people. The red shoes encouraged everyone to imagine a backstory, but in a way this wasn't necessary. The real story was as extraordinary as any that we could imagine. It may sound cruel, but I found her embarrassment compelling and I reveled in capturing the electric awkwardness of the scene. Although I enjoyed little about the foundation year, I eventually settled into art college life and became more used to the environment. By Easter time, I was relatively content. Little did I know that Easter Monday, 1964, was to be a day that would change my life and work irreparably and forever. It was my first year playing men's rugby with the old Brodlians after leaving school and I'd just been promoted to the first team for their last game of the season. It was a momentous day for the whole family because Michael and I were to play halfbacks together for the first time. It felt like a rite of passage for me because Dad had been taking us to watch the old Brodlians play for years and the first team players were my heroes. Now I was to play alongside them. It was a beautiful, crisp spring day. The game was in the Lake District and Michael and I travelled there on the coach with the other players. It was very exciting. The game was magnificent. Michael and I impressed our teammates, at least we thought we did, by playing well together and we won the match comfortably. I'd been nervous before the game but I'd come through it unscathed and triumphant. I left the field glowing with pride, looking forward to celebrating this important family triumph with my parents. Mum and Dad applauded from the touchline. The whole family was elated. Michael and I joined the other players for a drink after the game, but left fairly early, preferring to travel back in the car with our parents, then return on the coach. Everything was wonderful, until we got home. Three weeks before the Easter Monday, 
rugby match. I'd had what a more superstitious person would call a prophetic dream. It was simply that Dad was dead. I didn't witness the death itself. He was just dead, not there anymore. I was 17 years old and I wasn't the most difficult of teenagers, but I'd started to rebel against my parents' traditional ways. I'd grown a beard and long hair, knowing that Dad would disapprove, and had developed an interest in politics that, that were the opposite of his. Like most fathers of his generation, he was quite fixed in his ways, and despite being a jazz musician himself, he objected to the exci exciting movements in pop music. I was enamoured of rock and roll, which he considered a terrible noise compared to his Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman records. And when the Beatles arrived, he was an active participant in the general parental defence against the mania. His dismissal of modern art especially irritated me, and we had many arguments on the subject. He only liked realistic drawing and painting, and believed anything else was nonsense. As well as surrealism, which he hated, I liked Picasso, Paul Klee, and Graham Sutherland, and it annoyed me that Dad couldn't overcome his prejudices to at least accept my different opinion. We argued a lot about these things, but the dream made me imagine for the first time what life would be like without him. It made me realise how much I loved him, and for the next three weeks I consciously avoided any arguments and tried hard to be more tolerant of his views. It worked. During this period, we got on much better. It's comforting for me now to think that my relation with him for those three years was as good as it ever was. We arrived home from the Lake District in high spirits, and the fact that Dad couldn't get one of the electrical plugs in the living room to work wasn't going to spoil them. What happened next did. Michael and I were in the living room with Dad. Our Doris, that's my mother, was in the kitchen. Dad was sitting in a chair, fiddling with the faulty plug, when slowly, it seemed, he fell off his chair and started writhing around on the floor. He was making the most peculiar noises. I remember the fall as like a dream, not quite real, and as if in slow motion. My first thought, that it was another of his performances to make, make us laugh. But then I knew that such a cruel, misjudged joke wasn't in his character. It soon dawned on us that something truly terrible was happening. Yet the absurd noises and exaggerated thrashing continued to give the episode an incongruously comic, theatrical quality. It was Dad's final pantomime. Soon, like a cliched Hollywood death scene, he began frothing at the mouth. It was absolutely horrific. Amidst the horror, Michael and I were vaguely aware of our Doris trying to enter the room. We didn't want her to see what was happening, and we did our best to keep her out. But she eventually forced her way past us and sank to her husband's side. While one of us called an ambulance, she tried to perform hopeless, uneducated resuscitation procedures. She had no idea what she was doing. She pounded on his chest and thrust her mouth to his cluelessly, mimicking the histrionic gestures of TV doctors. She was desperate. He took 20 minutes to die. Eventually the convulsing stopped and he just lay there looking dreadful. His face had turned purple, his mouth was blue and his body, though probably not actually bloated, seemed somehow enlarged in its final motionless. He was undeniably dead. No reaction seemed natural. I thumped the wall with my fist. It seemed as an intelligent thing to do as any. It was as if some evil force had entered our home and destroyed the most precious thing within it. We were forced to watch while the man we had looked to for protection and guidance all our lives, the king of the castle, the man of steel, was simply wiped out. There was nothing we could do against the invisible kryptonite. We all knew there and then that our lives had been transformed. I was going to carry on with um, stuff about medical illustration, but maybe that's a good time to, to stop. What do you think?
Yes, if you can all recover for a minute. <laughs> I was going to go on to talk about more happy things. <laughs> okay, we'll try and talk about some more happy things um, once we got over that. Um, one, of the, um, one of the things that uh, I particularly wanted to ask you about, uh, this, this history is very interesting, and I will just, we'll just do it in a, in a quick nutshell. After yeah. this, yeah. you worked in medical illustration. Yeah, I'll show you some slides. Um, yes. Well, um, those are the rugby book I did at college. Medical illustration. Mm -hmm. Sorry, no, I, th I thought no, I was going to move on to something nicer. <laughs> and then, uh, and then you worked in greetings cards. Yes, that, that's where I was going to yeah. finish. Now, how yeah. could, what, could be, what could be nicer than that? Um, and what fact, could be what could be funnier than that? And rugby players and gorillas a common theme in my in my work. What's, what does that all mean? And in discuss. Fact, it was about fifteen years, wasn't it, before you? Um, actually wrote your first children's book, 15 years of working in... Uh, well, I, don't, I can't remember, 1976 was my first children's book, and I mm -hmm. suppose... No, it wasn't 15 years, because it was an overlap. I think mm -hmm. I stopped doing greetings cards after 15 years, right. by which time the um, picture books had taken over. At first it was an experiment to see if I could live on just on picture books, and so I gave up supposedly greetings cards just for an, uh, a year or something. One of the things this event was billed as talking about was um, how you've used your books to inspire children. And I thought, um, perhaps this is a more cheerful thought than the things we've been looking at. What's the best comment that a child has ever made in response to one of your books? The best ch comment that a child's ever made in response to one of my books? That's very, very difficult. Um, the, the one that I remember, probably isn't necessarily the best, but the one that sticks, like asking somebody, what's the best? In fact, I was asked yesterday mm -hmm. on camera by a little boy, what's the best joke you've ever heard? And I could only <laughs> remember one about why did the sand get wet because of the seaweed. And I know that isn't <laughs> the best joke I've ever heard, but it was the only one I could think of. And in this case, the, 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 the comment that comes to mind was quite early in my career. Um, it was in a children's bookshop, and a boy asked me, um, "Why?" Uh, the inevitable question: Why do you paint gorillas and, uh, and chimpanzees a lot in your books? Uh, and at that time, I hadn't actually. But yeah. um, and I'd thought about it, and I said, "Well, why do you think? Why do you think you, I, I've done?" And he and he thought about it, and he said, it's, he, th "He thinks it's a bit like my pictures." He says, "When you look at my pictures, they look normal." By that, I think he meant um, everyday life, like a, a family in, I don't know, mm. Piggy Book, for instance. You look at them sitting on a, on a sofa and they just look like a normal family. And most people, most adults particularly, will turn the page over without noticing yes. Yes. that the flower on the man's buttonhole is in the shape of a pig yes. to give us a little clue or suggestion of what's going to happen later on. So he said, yeah, when you look at your pictures, they, they first of all look normal, but when you look more carefully, it's not quite normal. He said, it's, gorillas are like that. Gorillas look normal. And I think by that he meant like People, us. Yes. But when you look closer, they're not quite. So they are very much like us, but not quite. And I think that's the best answer. I've been trying to answer that question for the last 30 years, and I still think that's the best answer to the question. It's interesting, because one, uh, talking about a good comment that, ch that children made, one of the worst comments I think you ever had from a critic, I rather like the, cri the American critic who said, who criticised Willie the Wimp on, the, on moral grounds because she said it had a macho ideology and a racist presentation of stereotypes of African-American children living in an urban area, um, who are, she thought were the d villains of the book. Um, but she reached the, this conclusion about it when, in fact, there aren't any human children in the book, African-American or no, otherwise. No. So it's, 
as you say, when you use gorillas, they're so like people. That for some reason, she brought yeah, well, to this notion the idea that there was some connection between the gorillas and African-American children, which seems to me that the racism was on her part. Uh, completely on yes. her part. I yes. mean, maybe, maybe I should have thought that some people might make that interpretation. It had never, ever crossed my mind. I mean, yes. for me, the gorillas are us all. Yes. We're all, we're all gorillas or chimpanzees in a sense. Um, really to come back to the, the story you're telling about your father, one of the things I think is interesting is that you portray families that, as you say, are ordinary families, but you're also quite good at doing unhappy families. And in fact, it wasn't your experience that your family was unhappy no, no, until exactly this terrible moment. Yeah. Um, but if you look at a, a book like, for instance, Me and You, which is a recent retelling of Goldilocks, um, what you feel is that the um, baby bear in that doesn't, in his nuclear family with his mother and father, isn't actually having quite as good a time as Goldilocks, who seems to be the child of a single mother in a rather deprived context. But at the end, she's the one with the hugs, and mm. he's the one with the rather negligent parents. Now, what the, and this is a recurrent theme in your books, mm. rather unhappy nuclear families and quite happy unconventional families, single parents and so on. What's that about? Um, I suppose I've always had um, sympathy for the, well, I, I dedicated that book to the underdogs. I suppose my natural sympathy is for people who struggle, people who have difficulties, and uh, it's something to do with the kind of person I am. It's not a conscious thing. Yes. I, I don't say to myself, this book is going to be about a single parent family. Or the, or, I mean, in, 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 case, in, in actual fact, in me and you, we don't know that. Yeah, we no, only see the mother, no, of course, no. but we don't know. I, the, 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 in that particular case, that, the book came from me thinking that um, I'd just reread Goldilocks mm -hmm. and, uh, and thought, well, you know, we're, we're all meant to identify with the bears and, and against Goldilocks, who's this, assumed to be this greedy, selfish girl who's broken into the house and, you know, Eating their, their porridge and everything, <laughs> yeah. And, and in, in the version I was reading, which is quite an old version, I think the father bear, as Goldilocks jumped out of the window, said, um, I hope she broke her neck. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, hang on a minute, we don't know why she'd gone into their house. Maybe there was a good reason for it. Maybe she was lost, maybe she was frightened, maybe she was hungry, tired, whatever. You know, we, we just assume from that, the way the story is told, that they're the goodies, and she's the, the alien outsider who's kind of come into their comfortable world. Do you think then, in effect, um, perhaps the reason we've made that assumption is that there's a kind of middle class perspective, if you like, in most children's books. Do you think that that's a, well, a tendency? We're all middle class now, aren't we? Isn't well, indeed. <laughs> but do you think that's a tendency that you've worked against? I mean, there are people who identify you as somebody who... Um, probably not deliberately. I, I think it's more uh, a sympathy for I don't even like the word underdog, actually. I don't know why I'm using it so much. Um, the outsider, I suppose, the one who finds life more, more difficult. So it's a sympathy for them rather than a, an annoyance or... A, I mean, I'm, of course I'm middle class. Born lower middle class, probably, and still somewhere around about there. Um, so it's, no, it's, not, it's not against the middle class or, or indeed the middle class of the world of picture books. I, I, that's not something that interests me in, in, in trying to change uh, how children's pictures are in, t in class terms. Uh, so I, you, I, yeah. I can only do the books I do and they come from inside me and it reflects probably how I feel about the world. Yeah. So you don't think of picture books as a tool to change the world? 
Um, I, not the world necessarily. I'd like to change people's perceptions of um, pictures and picture books and drawing and creativity and storytelling and all that business. I don't necessarily think I'm going to, I think it would be foolish of me to think I could change the word, change the word politically. Um, but I do hear people saying, you know, after I've been talking about my books, for instance, people come up to me and say, oh, I never knew there was so much in your book. So that's always yes. pleasing to hear, that people notice things. Uh, adults, this is. Of course, I know that children notice them. Yes, and in fact, one of the things about your, um, the way children notice things is the point of your book really is to encourage that noticing and uh, a book like The Shape Game is to also encourage them to draw. Yes. Um, so why does it why does it matter this looking and the drawing? Why does it why is it so important to you? I think it's so important because we can all do it when we're five. Every five-year-old child I've ever talked to or or worked with can. And if I ask them, can you draw? Every five-year-old will say yes. Can you make up stories? Yes. Ask that of most adults. This audience accepted, of course. But ask most questions, most adults, can you draw? No, I can't draw. Can you make up stories? No. Why? What happens to us? And that's, I, I wish we could solve that problem. Shall we just see? How many of you think you can draw? <laughs> yeah. Right, in that case, can you come out and... <laughs> <laughs> yes, we might make you prove it later. No, there'll be no, no forced audience <laughs> participation. No, but... Um, a very that, small proportion. At least but, that, but even in this audience, Yeah, yes. even in an audience like this, yes, yeah. Yes. I think there's some people who secretly know they can draw, but don't want to put their hands up. And, uh, <laughs> and so why do you think it matters then that we all start to lose this? And why is it important that we should go on being... Well, for lots of reasons, I suppose. For the enjoyment that's to be had in our creativity. You can see how children enjoy creativity. Mm. And why should we deny ourselves that? Why should we... Uh, either drag ourselves or be dragged away from... I, I know it because I'm the children's lawyer, because I do picture books, I talk about picture books a lot, but I think that's a, a, just a symptom of, of what happens mm. to us in the, maybe the education system or the way that parents treat children. I do mm. hear parents saying to children more and more often, oh, you don't want a book like that, can we have a proper book? And by that, mm. they mean a book with just words and no pictures. And, and, uh, and I think it's no um, coincidence that that round about the time that children generally stop drawing or say I can't draw, which is anything from eight upwards, I suppose, um, is around about the same time that they're dragged away from picture books. Um, I'm still not saying why. I find it very difficult to say why things are important. I think purely for enjoyment. I think that why should we? Why should we throw away that creativity that we've all got? Why should we let it shrivel? Why should we not encourage that in the way that we encourage? Um, ability to solve mathematical problems or to go for a run in the countryside you know I think that our creativity is something that we all should also encourage and protect for not just our own sakes but for our view of the world I mean we are a visually illiterate nation I think mm. and possibly getting more so and after all it's not it's a, a long-standing tradition to have pictures tell stories mm. um, you know, in, certainly in the history of fine art, Absolutely. Renaissance, classical yeah. images, religious stories, you know, pre-Raphaelites and so on. So, so why is it you think that we've suddenly got this idea that illustration, that, that pictures that tell stories are inferior to the pictures that, that don't? 
And there's been a there's been a change in attitude, hasn't there, over a period of time? Uh, the pictures that tell well, I suppose you mean you're talking about well, the. Well, I mean illustration. Why illustration has become a poor relation? Yes, it, it has. Well, it's been it's been like that for quite a while. I know mm. when I was at college, people doing graphic design were uh, second-class citizens compared to the fine artists and the people who did what was called the. Um, not the CND, the National Diploma, I suppose. NDD. Uh, NDD, thank you. Well remembered. Right. They were sort of third-class citizens. So there's always been that, uh, I don't know about always, maybe not in terms of um, Hogarth. Was he an illustrator? Was he a painter? He was just brilliant. Yes. Um, so, but what's happening, I don't know. I, I, I certainly think that we're, we, we don't value our ability to see. And I mean, I've said before about seeing people in art galleries that spending more time looking at the caption than they do uh, looking at the painting. On average, I think people spend 30 seconds looking at the painting as they hurry through on their way to the gift shop to buy reproductions of the pictures that <laughs> they've skipped, skipped past. Um, so yes, I mean, we, it's talked about as living in a visual age and kids do have computer games and uh, DVDs and televisions and lots of fast-moving imagery. But I do think that actually to learn to look needs time. And, uh, and I think less and less we're able to give time to just looking at something or somebody or the world or a scene or a picture or whatever it is and to absorb it and think about it and talk about it and take it in. And children and adults talk about pictures probably the only time in their lives when they're looking mm. at picture books. Yes, and when teachers say you're too old for that. Yeah. That's a mistake. Oh, so. complete mistake. I think, uh, yeah, anything that, 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 I think that picture books are enjoyable. And, and, and it's, I think it's noticeable in boys. Boys enjoy picture books as much as girls do, I think, in my mm. experience anyway. Um, but as, as we know, as they get older, the boys read less and less. Um, older boys are starting to go back and start buying graphic novels now, aren't they? Mm. And I wonder whether that's a cry for something that they've been missing, something that they were dragged away from at an early age. And did you read comics as a boy? Did you? Well, yes. I did read comics. Yes. Comics more than anything else, yeah. Yes. And then we were encouraged not so much to go on to books from comics, but comics that didn't have so many pictures in, and then <laughs> comics that didn't have any pictures at all. And I was aware of them becoming more and more boring. Well, it's a, a comic that doesn't have any pictures at all? There were such things, I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, like what? what um, um, not Roy of the Rovers, but the books after, the t comics after Roy of the Rovers. The, not, not the Eagle. I think it was the, the, maybe I'm thinking of the children's newspaper. Yes. That, we were encouraged to read that. That was like an imitation adult newspaper. And it was mm -hmm. dreadfully boring. And it's, it's not necessarily, it's something that's very British, isn't it? This notion that pictures are something that you grow out of because graphic novels are much more fashionable in other countries exactly. and considered a work of art in France and Japan yes. and so on. And so picture books are considered to be more... And picture uh, books, and can be very sophisticated. Yes. Now you're, in a way, ploughing your own furrow, really, aren't you? About, I mean, obviously there are lots of interesting illustrators at the moment who are doing picture books for older children. Yes. But you're often put in a bit of a category of your own. You know, there's the three to sixes and then there's Anthony Brown doing something <laughs> that, that people might actually like when they're a bit older. Yeah, well, I'd like to think so. I mean, I, I don't never think of it. I can hear funny noises with the microphone now. Can anybody else? Right. Um, what was I saying? Uh, Three to being older. Oh, being yes. Um, older. I don't actually aim my books at a particular mm. age group, mm. if I can help it. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's pressure on a from a publisher to say, you know, would you fancy having to go to a younger book or something? And that's fine, I don't mind. Um, but 
all I can do really is the books that I would like to have seen when I was a child. And, and I like the idea that some of the, even the most sophisticated books, like Changes, for instance, I get, and Little Beauty, more recent one, uh, parents coming up to me, or grandparents sometimes, and saying, my two-year-old loved Little Beauty. And, and, the, and, and it was their two-year-old who pointed out to them that on the end of the, of the book, where there is a picture of a red uh, rose and a white rose, they're the ones who see the gorilla's face inside one and, mm. and, and the kitten's face inside the other. Um, and the same with changes. Changes can be um, read on a very simple basis of just a story about a boy uh, seeing strange things happening in the, in the house and at the end his mum and dad come back. But as people get older or more sophisticated readers, they can see that there are clues all through the book which tell us what the boy's really worrying about. So different layers, and, uh, and I like to put in as much as, in as possible. I think that children deserve to have somebody, or many people, not just me, um, you know, giving a lot of time and attention and, and respect to them. And also, you're, because there's often this discrepancy between what the text is doing and what the images are doing, the, the child who can't read, of course, is, is able to learn as much of the story as the adult who's reading the words. And exactly. I think that's a very rich relationship because the adult's often distracted by the text and the child is saying, no, but what's happening over here yes. is something completely different yeah. from what you're telling yeah. me. And I think that it's, it's oddly kind of empowering to the child, especially as well as, it, as well as encouraging them to actually look closely. That's a good thought. It means that mm. their, their part of it becomes more important. Mm. Because um, there's nothing more boring than having an illustration in a picture book in which it shows you what you've just been told is there in the text. Why, what's you know, the point? He drove a red exactly. car. Yeah. Chat, yeah. Red car, you know. Then it becomes an illustrated book, in my opinion, rather than a true picture book. Yeah. Ah, yes. Yeah, important distinction. So to, presumably that means that you can't, you're, you prefer to do your own texts because it gives you the opportunity to make this double narrative of text and image. Yes. It's harder to do when you have somebody else's text. It is. Uh, well, uh, you don't have arguments. I don't have arguments with myself, not really. <laughs> um, but uh, I've occasionally, uh, I have illustrated other people's books, and in the early part of my career, I illustrated a couple of books by Annalena McAfee. Mm -hmm. uh, and because I knew her, know her well, we could discuss how the pictures and the words would work together. So she didn't write the story and set it in stone. I've had that experience, and I think that happens quite a lot. Uh, a writer approaches a publisher with a text, there it is. The, te the publisher gives the text to an illustrator and says, there you are, get, get on and illustrate it. Mm -hmm. And the two never meet, they're not encouraged to meet, they're not encouraged to talk together, and so you, you get very often an illustrated story. Mm -hmm. um, but because we knew each other, she was able to uh, make suggestions to how I make might improve the pictures and, and vice versa. I could say, well, actually, we don't need to say this because the picture's already saying it. And that's the visitors who came to stay, for yes, instance. Yeah. Is that still in print? Yes. Yes, wonderful. Yeah. Um, Published by Walker Books, all, available to um, all good bookshops. Good. And one of the, uh, and again, a story in which um, single parenthood gets yes, a indeed. good press. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yes. Yeah, I don't know where that all comes from. My parents stayed together. Yes. Um, but, uh, but that, that in, in fact, is, is a good example, that particular book, of one where you had a lot of fun with shape substitutions, um, uh, which, you know, as you do in Voices in the Park and yeah. um, a lot of your best-known books, um, and obviously in the shape game. But uh, what I'm uh, 
And in a way, that was almost an opportunity to develop that because the text was doing its own thing. Yes. You were then playing yes. games that almost had nothing to do with the text. Exactly. Well, the, the story is incredibly simple. And when Annalena first showed it to me, I just thought, well, how can you make a picture book about it? It's just about people's feelings, about mm -hmm. a girl who feels, a girl who lives alone with her dad. Mm -hmm. um, she sees her mum every fortnight, and everything's very neat and tidy, and they have this very routine uh, life together. And then one day, the dad brings home a new woman uh, and her son, and they come, they're the visitors, and they, Life becomes more lively, but then the little girl starts to feel jealous, left out, and she tells her dad, and that's the end of the story. And I thought, How's, how am I going to illustrate this? And then, um, because I live, lived near the sea in those days, I thought it would be quite a nice idea to, to use the background, use the environment, use the seaside, because the seaside is two, two different places. In the winter it's bleak and cold and grey, and in the summer sometimes it's sunny and warm and lively and the visitors come so so I thought be able to use the um, yeah the background play the shape game with the background in a way mm -hmm. to show the feelings of the protagonist at different stages of the story and we had a lot of fun Bec yes because Annalena's text was very and it wasn't set because she'd, she'd, she'd change it but it was very quite simplistic and gave me a lot mm -hmm. of space a lot of room to play yes. around in fact that wasn't quite the end of the story because the father sends them away and she misses them, yes. and they come back. So there is a happy ending, which she becomes reconciled. To There's the a sort of ambiguously happy yes. ending, which is ones yes. I, I like. I don't think I've ever made yes. a book with a, with a sad ending. I always like to have uh, optimism, hope at the end. But I don't like to necessarily wrap everything up and say everything's absolutely perfect from then onwards. And perhaps that ambiguity is one of the reasons why people think that their books for older children. Because Maybe. They don't. They don't wrap tie everything up. Yeah, yes. maybe that's true. And they leave you to ask yourself questions about that. Is that something you feel is important that a picture book? Again, is that word important? Um, well, all right. That it's valuable. <laughs> that it's valuable. Yes. To, well, to the, the, my favourite films are those that yes. I think of as I come out of the cinema, and then for the next few days, I keep returning back to and mm. thinking. I wonder what happened next, or, or you know, what did that, what did that mean? Ah, oh, yes, and, and put things together. The yes. idea of you 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 working, not working, because that sounds like something you might not want to do. But mm. the idea of returning to something, and, and 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 yeah, putting yourself in there. I suppose we all identify with characters in books and films. But it also makes the act of reading creative. Yes, because you have some you input into yes. what the end of the story might exactly. be. Now I'm going to give you a chance to ask some questions if you like. I've got loads more, so if you haven't, um, I will ask them all. But um, there's a roving mic, uh, if you would like to ask a question. Now's your moment. Yes, this person near the mic. Thank you. Well, thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm based in South Africa, where most children are not English speaking. And when you talk about a double narrative, is it conflicting with the text or is it adding to it that's the bit I don't understand while they're trying to learn to read while they're trying to become literate and learn yeah. to read the text is, is it in conflict with that or is it adding to it or, or a different story that that's the bit I don't understand May, maybe a bit of both I, I find that what's interesting about picture books the relationship between the words and the pictures is sometimes yes the pictures can tell us more sometimes a slightly different story um, I mean, they're not. I don't make my books as tools to teach children to read. I think they are used to teach children to read, and I'm I'm really pleased about that because they hopefully they're enjoying the experience. They're enjoying the experience of of putting together the words and the and the pictures. And I think that children are 
much more capable than many of us realize in realizing that, yes, maybe, there may be a slight contradiction in the picture here, but it doesn't, it's, I don't think the children generally find that confusing or, or a problem. It isn't the same thing as having the picture as a literal clue to what the word is. If you think of a no. book like Zoo, uh, the narrative is the story of a family visiting the zoo and uh, making fun of the, the little boys making fun of the animals. The pictures and the mother's face in the pictures and the animals themselves tell you a different story about what captivity might mean. Um, so it's something, it's both, both ads yeah. and, and contradicts the yeah. text. And that, that would be a typical example. Mm. Any other questions? Oh. I've gone shy. Oh, yes, no, you. over here at the front. Thank you. Hi, you spoke about collaborating with other with writers and illustrating their work. A book of yours I enjoyed very much was the one that you did with Ian McEwan, oh, Daydreamer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I wonder what your working relationship was like with him. It was int very interesting, actually. He's always been one of my favourite writers. I kind of, um, I'm similar age, kind of grew up reading his short stories and then his novels at the same time, you know, the same age as he was writing them. And um, so when I heard that he was, his, it, it was working on a book, for the first time in my life I got in touch with the publisher and said, you know, any chance of having some illustrations in this, in this book? And they said, well, they've already got an illustrator. They'd asked Maurice Sendak to illustrate mm -hmm. it. And I thought, well, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I heard that... Um, There'd been some contractual problems with his agent, and his agent wanted to change some of the stories in some way. So they're not, I mean, it's all one story, but it's like a series of short stories in a way. So they were having problems with the agent, so they, then they came back to me and said, would you, would you like to? And I said, yes, please. But I was working flat out on a big book of King Kong at the time, and they needed me to do the daydream at the same time. So. Because I, I, I liked the story so much when I read it, I just felt I, I really, I, I'm not going to get this chance again. I really want to. So I was working on those pictures at night while I was doing King Kong by day. And, um, and I met Ian fairly early on, and uh, I liked him. Um, but he's, maybe, I don't know if it's the first or the second meeting. He's, no, it must have been the second meeting because I'd already done a few pictures. And I thought I didn't want to show the most dramatic moments in the story. I thought that's for the writing. This isn't a picture book. Why should I try and either echo or show what the writer is already showing? So I tried to create the world. I tried to show the characters and the environment they lived in and maybe a sense of mystery or that something was about to have a little clue as to what might be happening. But I didn't want to try and steal his thunder. Um, and he wasn't too sure about that. He thought that um, I, I should be making the pictures you know, reflect the dr dramatic quality of the, uh, mm. of, the, of the stories. And anyway, he wasn't insistent. Then we came to the cover. And for the cover, I, um, I did, well, you've seen it, obviously, the c a cat's head on the boy's body, because there's a story where he changes place with a cat. And, uh, and he was saying, uh, Ian was saying, well, in a very nice way, how about, um, why, why don't, you know, he wanted it to be more dramatic, to be more arresting. There's a story called Vanishing Cream, where a boy is rather bored with his life and his parents. He sees his parents and his, his, his sister sunbathing in the garden, and he finds some vanishing cream in his mum's uh, uh, chest of drawers and thinks, I wonder what would happen if I went and put this on my parents. So he starts putting, pretending it's sun cream, putting it on his parents, and his parents vanish, of course. And then he starts doing the same thing to his sister. 
and his sister sort of wakes up or something and sees what he's doing and sees she's only got one arm and one leg. And uh, she, she, she sort of gets up and hobbles and tries to run away from him as he chases around the garden with his vanishing cream. And he wanted me to put that on the cover. <laughs> now, now, I always knew it was going to be quite a diff difficult situation for Ian McEwan, the dark Ian McEwan, to be doing children's books. And people were going to say, is this the kind of person we want writing books for our children? And I thought, if you have that on the cover, <laughs> everybody's going to really jump on top of you. So he, he did agree to, uh, to, to, um, to not use that as a matter it, of it was, it was a story, though, that because it was about transformations, it was, in fact, something that you did have an affinity. Absolutely. So oh, he was, was right in my street as, mm -hmm. I, as, uh, as, as the book came in the morning. Mm -hmm. came one Saturday morning, and I started reading it, and I was just absolutely transfixed to it. I started reading it to my kids, and they were equally transfixed. We couldn't stop until I'd finished the story. We just said, they said, Dad, you've got to do that. And, and I really enjoyed it. I actually, I actually like the book. I, and I'm not being falsely modest. I think that could have done the pictures better if um, I maybe hadn't been working on King Kong. I don't know. Falsely modest. But there's um, also, of course, there's the other connection that Annalena McAfee happens to be married to Ian McEwan now. Now, <laughs> well, as a result, she was a journalist at the time, and she yes. was a uh, very good friend, and she wanted to go and in interview to promote help, you know, promotion of the book. So I went to interview Ian McEwan, and they fell in love, and and now uh, yes, they're. As a consequence a of you illustrating that book? Absolutely, yes. Uh, <laughs> the power of illustration. <laughs> There's a happy ending. Yeah, yes. indeed. Indeed, not, not even ambiguous. Yes. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes, gentlemen in the middle. Just one minute while they... Thank you all for being brave enough to ask questions, yes. by the way. I know it's not easy. Yes. A lot of your picture books have got... Um, classical paintings in them, mm. which when I work with children and they look at them, they want to know more and more about the painting. Yeah. And is that deliberate? Is that your way for introducing sort of fine art to children? It, it's, it's turned out that way, yes. I mean, I think the original, I mean, I, I use as much, when I first started doing picture books, I just used to put fun little de details in the background, which were like the funny little details I put in, the pirate's head on the shoe, for instance. They had nothing to do with the story. I used to make up justifications to, as to why I'd put them in or to do with children's imagination. But in actual fact, I was going back to how I drew as a child to try and make the books more interesting. Over a period of time, I've started to try and use as much as possible just the typeface or references, th you know, things that we might see on somebody's wall, like a painting or something that might be on the television or something that's wandered into the room or a shape in a tree or something to, to help to tell the parts of the story that the words don't tell. And because I'm interested in painting, I suppose that's where they came from. That I, I know quite a bit of, about painting, and so I will know that um, uh, Gainsborough's Mr. and Mrs. whatever they're called. Um, what are they called? Can you remember? Gain Andrews, thank Andrews, you. Yes. Yeah. Um, related <laughs> to the book called Piggy Book when I was that I was doing because I knew that you know it was them showing off their. Or the man particularly showing off his property and his wife and his dog and his lovely landscaped um, garden uh, that would relate to the story I was uh, making. So it all started, actually first of all started with Hansel and Gretel, very early book. And I included in their very, right at the beginning of the book, they're very poor and it's very dark mm. and miserable and gloomy. This is the beginning of the book of course. At the end it was reasonably happy. Um, and on the wall I put um, 
Light of the World, the Holman Hunt painting, and I painted it in just dark sepia colours as a kind of comment on, you know, there rather dark, there wasn't much light in their world at this particular part of the, of the story. So it's, it's really come from then, as I've gone on, I've started to realise, yes, this is a great way to introduce children to, to, um, to art. I, I do think that museums can be off-putting places. Well, I've seen it, I've seen kids being put off going into an art museum where they have to be quiet and it's a bit like going into a cathedral or something. And you were, you were, a, you were the artist in residence at the Tate for a while that's and the Tate what, game came out That's of that, when I discovered you? that, really, yeah. Which that, is about a yeah. visit yeah. to an art gallery. Exactly. So it's all, mm. it's my life. I mean, I've already done my autobiography in a way through the picture <laughs> books and I'm not sure why I'm doing it again. And certainly, that's yeah. that certainly true. Any more questions? At the front here, just get that mic. I know you said your picture books are for all ages, um, but it does seem to me, I haven't read them all, but quite a number, that um, Little Beauty is a simpler story for younger children. Yet in it, there is what, there's a slightly disturbing thing that the main character is in I had a lot of problems with my editor, or with my publishers over this, but so carry on. And then secondly, the thing that really enrages him is the picture of King Kong. Mm. And I was thinking, I could read that book to my uh, two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, but she would have no understanding of the picture of King Kong. And I just wondered if you had any comment about why you put that in. And uh, You could tell her about King Kong. I mean, you could have a conversation with her. That's what excites me about picture books, that they... It's not just. A, it's not like re uh, as my children got older, I stopped so much reading picture books at night to them. I started reading novels, and they enjoyed that. But it was a very different experience because it's me. It's a two-way, th one-way thing, really. Me reading to them, whereas with a picture book, we'd be talking about what's happening. We'd be. T what, 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 what are they watching on the television, Dad? Well, you see, I don't object to explaining. I think all reading involves telling a lot, but it's just perhaps just a snobbery because child doesn't have television. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're on, do you think that's out of context, King Kong in that book or not? No. <laughs> <laughs> was there something? Well, there was something else that you were going to say about but it. Yeah, the, I suppose the notion is, if you put references in for a book, that Mona Lisa, small yeah, children. Mr. and Mrs. Andrews. Yes. Uh, Who's that for? Is it for the? Is it for, in order to facilitate the conversation? Is it for the adults that's reading the book to enjoy it's, separately? It, it's not for the adults, um, and it's a fair point. I know I'm. I might be being. Sounds like I'm being a bit dismissive. Um, I don't do anything specifically for the adults. I hate the idea of winking over the head of the child at the adults. You get it? You see what this is? Um, it doesn't matter if the child doesn't know yes. what the film King Kong is. The, the, the child, I think, can understand that watching something on the television or in, a f or in real life may make them angry. Now, something in that film made this gorilla angry. It doesn't matter that the, at a certain age children won't know it's King Kong. Although the film is much wider known than many of us might suspect. That's interesting. Perhaps time for a last question. If there are any? No. Well, in that case, I'm going to ask you one last thing. Um, uh, when you... Um, uh, yeah, yes, I, I know what I want to ask. 
When you go out and you work with children and they talk to you about your books, has the feedback that you've got from them ever changed anything about the way that you work? Um, probably not. Um, I mean, I've had sort of ideas from children. Mm -hmm. I went to a school in um, Belgium, uh, or Holland, Belgium, definitely Belgium. And, um, and one of the classes, uh, it was after I'd done my dad, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, one of the classes had been working on my books, and they developed, uh, it was after my mum even, my dad and my mum had been done. Mm -hmm. So they developed a book called My Brother, mm -hmm. and they wanted to show it to me. And um, I kind of, I thought, oh, it's very nice, it's very charming, but I, you know, I've done my dad and I've done my mum, it's enough. Um, and, and I thought it started off the same, you know, my brother's as, my brother's really cool, he can, I don't know what he can do, play, he can skateboard or whatever. And, uh, and I was thinking, yes, this is all very nice, but I don't want to do my brother. And I knew it was going to end the same as the previous two. It had ended with, uh, I love my mum or I love my dad, and you know what, he loves me, she loves me. And I thought it was going to be exactly the same with my brother. Um, but when we got to the end of the, their book, it, it ended with, um, my, my brother's really cool. He's a real, I don't think we said real cool. Just ended with, my brother's really cool. And guess what? You turn the page, and so am I. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was fantastic. So yeah. I, I asked, I was so, so enchanted with it. I, and I told them of so, of course. And I said, would you mind if, you know, if one day I do my brother and I use this as an ending? And of course, well, not of course. They happened to be delighted. And uh, so yes. I, I credited them at the, at the front of the book. So, so they really changed the, the, the thought that I might ever do another. Because I did my dad, and that was it as far as I was concerned. I don't know how I came to do mine, and whether I was persuaded by my publishers or whether I was short of something to do or whether it was because my mum had recently died and so we should do something you know, to balance things out or not. Um, so, but I definitely wasn't going to do one about my brother, but, um, or indeed my grandma or my <laughs> pet. But who knows? <laughs> if I see some fantastic idea from children, um, we, we, we borrow an ideas. We get ideas from everywhere, and sometimes we get ideas from children or from other people's stories or everywhere. But I'm sure you're not uh, you're not short of things to do at the moment. So we're particularly no. grateful that you've uh, you've come and made time to be at Edinburgh and shown us uh, this fantastic preview of a book I personally can't wait to read the rest of. It sounded to me an absolutely wonderful memoir. And, um, and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you to the audience for your thank splendid you. attention and your lovely questions. Thank you. um, it's been a great pleasure to, uh, to, ha to have you listening. Um, and thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you. thank you. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.